for super study, and uh, I thought I would take advantage of this opportunity to rethink some uh, messages that uh, I'm planning on preaching uh, in a couple weeks in Singapore, and I have the privilege of, of traveling there with Kelly, and uh, we're going to be uh, ministering to a, a church there, um, uh, and we're going to be doing a student camp, kind of a young people's camp, kind of a high school, college age kind of deal, and also minister to the church family at night. And so we're going to be doing a number of things together, and so uh, looking forward to that. But one of the themes that uh, I was asked to speak on is uh, battling sin and temptation. And so we're calling it the ultimate fight, and uh, talking last week we talked about uh, the, the best place, uh, I think, to start, right, with um, uh, talking about fighting sin. Sin can be very discouraging, very um, disheartening, uh, very depressing, um, and so I think the best place to start is fighting with hope, right? And we looked at 1 Corinthians ten thirteen. no temptation, whatever you're facing, right, um, is not uh, unique to you. No temptation is overtaking you, but that which is common to man. And God's faithful. He'll not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with every trial, with every temptation, He'll provide a way of escape so you can endure it. I mean, that is a hope-filled verse that uh, you are not alone. Uh, not alone in that there are other people who are going through the same thing you're going through. They're battling the same sin that you're going through, the same temptation you're faced with on a daily basis. But more importantly, you're not alone because why? God is with you, right? God is faithful. And uh, we have a, a faithful high priest uh, who, who knows what it's like to, to uh, be uh, a human being living in a sin-cursed world. And, uh, and so Jesus has been here and done that, except for sin, right? Uh, and so he can relate and he can help us. And so um, hopefully that was an encouragement to you last week. And tonight, I want to talk about, in this theme of fighting, uh, I want to talk about fighting to the death. Fighting to the death. Back in 2003... Uh, an extraordinary incident occurred in the life of a 27-year-old computer engineer from Aspen, Colorado, by the name of Aaron Ralston. Some of you may remember that name. Uh, Ralston is an avid outdoorsman, and he set off on a day trip hiking and rock climbing uh, in Utah's Canyonlands National Park. And while descending into what's called a slot canyon, which is just a narrow crevice uh, in the midst of a mountain, he was climbing down over this suspended boulder, and it broke loose, and it, and it crushed his right hand and pinned him against the wall at the bottom of the, at the, bottom of the cave. And, and at first, he, he threw his body against the, this 800-pound rock uh, to try to free himself to no avail, and then he tried to chip away at the rock before realizing that the only way he was going to be able to escape was to cut off his arm. And so after three days of being stuck in this cave, in this crevice, he decided to amputate his right forearm, uh, but he made little progress as he was sawing back and forth with his dull pocket knife. Two days later, he had run out of food and water. He was dehydrated. He was delirious. And he knew he had to do something while he was still co coherent or he was going to die. And so it occurred to him that he could break his bones. So he did, 
which enabled him to then amputate his arm. He was able to makeshift a tourniquet out of a, out of a tube from his water bottle, his water backpack, and after freeing himself, he still needed to get back to his car and cell phone, which were about eight miles away. And so somehow he managed to pull himself out of the canyon and rappel down a 65-foot sheer cliff with one arm and hiked six miles before he came across some other hikers. They came, they, they came to him and uh, gave him something to eat and, and to drink. They alerted the authorities, and he was quickly airlifted uh, to the hospital. Now, this guy's harrowing ordeal was made into a movie. You may have seen it, 127 Hours. That was the movie that came out a few years back. I first read about this incident in the Houston Chronicle in an article entitled, you ready for this? Loss of Limb, Price Climber Paid to Live. Loss of Limb, Price Climber Paid to Live. And I thought, what a vivid example of how a person who has a passion to live will do anything it takes not to die. Even if it means doing something as radical as cutting off your own arm. And Ralston's story reminds me of what Jesus said in Matthew 5.30. You'll, you'll remember this. Jesus said, if your right hand makes you what? Stumble, what are you supposed to do? Cut it off and throw it away from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. This is what you might call radical amputation and Jesus expected his followers to be willing to do whatever it takes to free ourselves from any sin that threatens to kill us what Jesus was saying essentially here is that our eternal destiny depends on how we deal with sin in our life this is a heaven or hell issue which should motivate us by the way to to deal with sin radically rather than lackadaisically, which is unfortunately how we often deal with sin, don't we? Kind of take a lackadaisical approach. And the Bible's approach to dealing with sin is so radical that it's not often talked about. In fact, I told you last week, I personally have never heard a message preached on this particular subject that I'm going to talk with you about tonight. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if there were some of you here that have never even heard of what I'm about to talk about. The Bible teaches that the main way we, would, we should deal with sin in our lives is what's called mortification. Mortification. How many of you are familiar with that term, mortification? Okay, most of you, if not all of you, that's good. Um, if you and I are ever going to overcome sin in our lives... We need to understand the doctrine of mortification. And so what I want to do tonight is just answer two basic questions about mortification. Number one, what is it? What is mortification? And number two, how do we do it? How do we mortify sin in our lives? And so if you leave here tonight being able to answer these two questions, what is it and how to do it, you will be well on your way to overcoming sin in your life. And, and, and I just want to encourage you, you may be in a similar situation, spiritually speaking, as Aaron Ralston, right? You are, you are pinned by some 800-pound sin that, that just locks you down. You're out in the desert. You're all alone. You've tried to free yourself time and time again. You've been chipping away at this thing for years, but it won't budge. And you're like, you know what? How do I escape this? How do, how do I get away from this? How do I get free from this? 
The question is, are you willing to do whatever it takes to stay alive? That's the point. And so, what is mortification? Well, take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 13. Here is the verse in the Bible that talks about mortification, not necessarily with that term. Uh, that's a, a more of a theological term that, that we have used as a label to describe what Paul talks about here in Romans chapter 8, verse 13. Listen to what he said. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must, what? Die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will, what? Live. Now, again, we're just parachuting down here and landing in the middle of the book of Romans. We need to kind of set the context here for a second. And really, there's a, there's a series of thought here in Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 7, leading into Romans chapter 8. And what Paul was doing here in Romans 6, 7, and 8, he was addressing the topic of sanctification. Chapters 1 through 5 is about salvation or justification, how we're justified by grace through faith alone. Um, and, and now he moves, he transitions in chapter 6, 7, and 8 to talk about sanctification, which is the process that every believer goes through uh, after they're saved. Uh, and what happens is that God uh, begins to set them apart from sin unto God in a very practical way. It's moving from, from sinfulness to sinlessness. And I don't mean sinless because we'll never be sinless. I mean you sin less than you used to. All right? So there's a sinfulness. You go from sinfulness to a sinlessness. You sin less than you used to. In other words, you're transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be sanctified, to be set apart, to be made holy, to be like Jesus. And so Paul's flow of thought regarding sanctification in Romans 6 or 8 goes something like this. Chapter 6 is all about the liberation from sin. It's all about the liberation from sin. Uh, if you look at Romans chapter 6, verse 6 and 7, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin for he who has died is freed from sin. And then verse 11, he says, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. And so sin no longer has power over us. That's what he's saying. It no longer controls us. Why? Because Christ's death defeated the power of sin. And so liberation from sin is realized in chapter 6. And then he gets to chapter 7. And, and, and uh, if chapter 6 is about liberation from sin, chapter 7 is about frustration with sin frustration with sin, and, and here Paul is just being honest about his ongoing struggle with sin. Notice chapter 7, verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want I do not do, but the practice I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of the sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? 
And so here's, again, Paul just confessing his, his ongoing battle uh, with sin, that even though the power of sin has been defeated, chapter 6, its presence in our life remains. It still attracts us. It still tries to control us. Can you relate to that? Amen. Yeah, that's, even though we've been justified and the power of sin has been broken, sin still holds a, an attraction uh, to our flesh, um, which is basically this humanness, the, the parts of our body that he was talking about in chapter 6, right, that, that, we, we, uh, that we've, we've, our bodies have gotten in the habit of sinning, our eyes, our, our ears, our, our feet, our hands, uh, have, uh, our mouths have gotten in the habit of sinning, and so uh, there's this frustration with sin expressed. That's chapter 7. And then we get to chapter 8, and, and if, if chapter 6 is all about liberation from sin, chapter 7 is about frustration with sin, Chapter 8 is all about mortification of sin. It's about mortification of sin. And we have, again, chapter 8, verse 13, If you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Notice he says, Who will deliver me from this body of death? Right? Chapter 7. But what is he saying? We need to be putting to death the deeds of the body. And so he's talking about here in chapter 8 how sinful habits are defeated by the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. And the hope of overcoming sin's control is living under the Spirit's control. And so that's the flow of thought here in in, in Paul's mind, chapter 6, 7, and 8. Now, notice the verse that comes immediately before. That was the general context. Let's look at the media context of chapter 8, verse 13. Look at verse 12. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. In other words, before we were saved, we had no choice but to sin. We were under obligation to the flesh. In fact, look at verses 7 and 8. He says, because the mindset of the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so there were, we had no choice but to sin before we were saved. But now that we are saved, we don't have to sin anymore. We're able not to sin. How is that for good news? We are able, before we were unable not to not sin, Right? Now we're able to not sin. Now we have a choice whether or not to sin. We used to be slaves to sin, but now sin no longer controls us. It doesn't have control over us. We are now under obligation as Christians to live a holy and pure and righteous life. And that's what he goes on to say in verse 13. For, right, you are no longer under obligation to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you're living according to the flesh, in other words, if you're continuing to live according to your flesh, you must die. So he's saying instead of living according to the flesh, we should be putting to death the deeds of the flesh here by the power of the Spirit. That little phrase there, but if by the Spirit you are putting to death, you see that? Putting to death, verse 13. You might want to circle that, underline it, bracket it. Putting to death. Literally, that means to kill, to destroy. And this is where we get the the, the term mortify. To mortify. Mortification. Uh, probably the word that we're most familiar with in the English language that might give us a little help in understanding mortification is, is, is a mortician. You've heard of a mortician, haven't you? 
Well, what does a mortician do? He just messes around with dead bodies, right? It's all about dead people and dead things, right? That's what a mortician does. He deals with dead bodies. He prepares dead bodies. And so a simple definition, just to kind of get us going in the right direction here, a simple definition of mortification is this, killing sin in your life. That's all it means. Big fancy seminary word, mortification, it simply means killing sin in your life. And it's crucial that we understand that mortification is a life and death issue. Again, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You see the contrast between death and, and life here? And so just like Jesus in his analogy of, of cutting off your hand, listen, it's better to cut off your hand than to have your whole body and go to where? Hell, right? In other words, how we deal with our sin is a heaven or hell issue. It tells a lot about us and where we're, who we are and where we're headed, right? Paul's saying the same thing. He's implying here that our eternal destiny hinges on whether or not we mortify sin in our life. Now, Aaron Ralston, right, the guy that got stuck in that cliff or in that crevice, he knew he would die if he didn't cut off his arm. And he was willing to do whatever it took to remove that which would cause him to die. And in the same way, we will die if we don't put sin to death in our life. We must be willing to do whatever it takes to remove from our lives that which will cause our death. The Scottish preacher David Clark said this, If you don't kill sin, sin will kill you. If you don't kill sin, sin will kill you. Now notice verse 13 again, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. Now, you might think that maybe Paul was implying there that that a Christian who sins could lose their salvation. Is that what he's saying? No, he couldn't be saying that because we know you can't lose your salvation. That would contradict the rest of Scripture. I think what he was saying here is if you're living according to the flesh... What does that mean? What does it mean to live according to the flesh? In other words, that you are living in a continual pattern of sinfulness. That you have a sinful lifestyle. That you have sinful habits that are just ongoing in your thoughts and words or actions. And you're not doing anything about them. You will die in your sin. In other words, you were never a Christian to begin with. You're not truly saved. That's what he's saying there. And and the way we know that is because of what the Apostle John said in 1 John chapter 3. Notice what he he said. Turn over there. This is a very important passage that we need to grapple with. And it's it's really a hard one uh, to really apply. I don't think it's hard to understand. It's hard to apply. John's pretty straight up here with us. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Oh, what is that? First John, First John chapter 3, verse 7. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. So he's trying to help us make sure we're not deceived um, by someone or even ourselves. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one is born of God. 
No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he's born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. In other words, this is how you know whether you're a Christian or not. Anyone who does not, what? Practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Now, what is the word that I've been emphasizing in those verses that's repeated four times? Practice. What is practice? What does it mean to practice? If you were, if you were, uh, you know, a musician growing up, and you you had to practice piano or practice the 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 trombone or practice the violin, what does that mean? You just repeat it over and over and over again until you get it right. If you're an athlete, right, you got to go to practice, right. What is, what's, the, what's the point of practice? You just keep doing those layup drills over and over. Same thing, over and over. Muscle memory, right? You're just kind of getting into the, how to, it's practice. It's something you do, you do over and over and over again. That's exactly right. It's, a, it's, it's habits, just living this a certain way. So he's basically saying, listen, if you, if you are uh, doing the right thing on a habitual basis, on a regular basis, that's evidence, Right? That, that you're a believer, that you are a child of God. But if you're doing the unright, if you're doing the wrong thing over and over and over again, right, that's indication, evidence that you're, that you're not a believer. And so I've used this illustration before, but I think it's very helpful. And so this is how I think we should uh, view uh, what, what he's saying here, okay, that, that, that it's impossible, he's saying it's impossible for a believer to continue in an ongoing habitual lifestyle of sinfulness. On the other hand, if you're putting to death the deeds of the flesh, in other words, um, your life is characterized by a sincere desire to overcome the flesh and an earnest effort to overcome sinful habit patterns, then guess what? You'll live. That's what he's saying. Why? It's not that, listen, it's not that mortifying sin saves you, but mortifying sin, what? Proves that you're saved. So your desire and your effort to overcome sin in your life is evidence that you're a true Christian. And I think one of the greatest assurances that, that we're truly saved is not that we never sin. Just because you sin, you keep sinning, doesn't necessarily mean you're not saved. But there should be a decreasing frequency of sin in our lives. That's a, that's a key phrase, a decreasing frequency of sin in our lives. In other words, this is the analogy I've used before, okay? Say this is the cross, and this is all of our lives before we come to Christ. It's just one big sin, 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 sin. We're just sinning all the time, all over the place. Sin, 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 sin. That's just our lifestyle. It's our habit, right? And then all of a sudden we come to the cross. Boom. We recognize, man, I am a sinner who deserves God's wrath and punishment. But, but I, I realize Christ died on the cross for my sin, and so I repent of my sin, and I place my faith in Christ's death alone and resurrection for my salvation. And then what does our life look like after the cross? It looks like this. Sin, sin. Whoa, wait a minute. You're sinning. How can you be a Christian? You sinned. Well, hang on. Okay, so this is your life. Sin, 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 sin. You get saved, and then it looks like this. Sin, 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 sin. There's a decreasing frequency of sin. I think that's what all of any true believer's uh, spiritual journey should look like that. 
right? This de- that there's a tapering off of sin. It's not that you never sin. There's a tapering off of sin in your life. Now, this is the irony of the Christian life, though. The closer you get to the Lord, right, the longer you, you walk with Christ, the more sinful you feel like you are. And that's why some people, even later on in, in their spiritual life, start thinking, I wonder if I'm even saved. Well, what's happening is you're getting closer to the spotlight, right? If you're way back here in the dark, right, and you look down, you're like, you don't see much, you know. I get dressed in my closet on Sunday morning, and I, I looks good on, in the closet, but then all of a sudden I, I get here to church, and I get out of my, I get out of my car, and I, and I put my jacket on, I and mean, I got dog hair all over my suit. I'm like, what is up with that? I didn't even see that back there, right? But when you come into the light, right, you see more of your sin, and so that's a good thing, and that's kind of the maddening thing of the Christian life, right? You, you, don't, you, don't, you never feel like you're gaining on it. But hopefully in your, in your heart of hearts, you know that you're seeing this decreasing frequency of sin. The point is, listen, we are not perfect and will never be perfect this side of heaven. Don't let anybody ever tell you that you can somehow overcome sin completely uh, in this lifetime. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. But we should be resolved to kill sin rather than allowing it to remain a pattern in our life. And so let me ask you some questions that will test the the genuineness of your salvation. You ready? Number one, do you have a passion to be holy and not sin? I mean, seriously, do you really have a passion to be holy and not sin? I, I didn't say, do you never sin, right? I said, do you have a passion not to sin? Number two, are you exerting intense effort to overcome sin in your life? I mean, when you do mess up, what are you doing about it? If you're not doing anything about it, maybe you're not a Christian. But if you're saying, man, I need to repent of that. I need to change. I need to get accountability. I need, to ha- I need help, right? I need to work on that with the help of God's Spirit. And then lastly, number three, do you see a decreasing frequency of sin in your life? Do you see a decreasing frequency uh, of sin in your life? Listen, if you have no desire and you're putting forth no effort, or you see no progress in mortifying sin in your life, it may mean that you're not a Christian. A person that's not a Christian doesn't have the Holy Spirit in them, and therefore they have no desire or ability to mortify sin. And so I think that's what Paul meant when he says, for if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. I mean, if, it's, if, this, if your life is just characterized by just living according to the flesh, you're not saved, and you're going to die in your sin and go to hell. That's what he's saying. So I think this verse should really challenge us to do serious, thorough self-examination to make sure we're truly in the faith, right? 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine your life to see if you're in the faith. Uh, 2 Peter 1, 10, make sure of his calling and choosing you. Well, Listen to what some great men uh, of the past and present have said about the doctrine of mortification. This is Martin Lloyd-Jones. This is what he said, uh, commenting on Romans 8, 13. He said, here we are told exactly in practice how the Christian becomes sanctified. Or to state it differently, here we're told in detail and in practice how the Christian is to wage battle against sin. Right here, in this one verse. This is how we're, this is how we're supposed to fight sin. J.I. Packer 
said it this way. He said to mortify means to kill, and the end aimed at in this duty, excuse me, is destruction. It is in all kill, as it is in all killing, the utter ruin, destruction, and gradual annihilation of all the remainders of this cursed life of sin. Indwelling sin has been dethroned and dealt its death blow through the believer's union with Christ in his death. Now with the Spirit's aid, the Christian must spend his lifetime draining its lifeblood. What a great analogy there, right? And then John MacArthur uh, wrote a very helpful book called The Vanishing Conscience. If you've not read that, it's, it's very well done, and he, he addresses the subject of mortification. He says this, The flesh is very subtle and deceptive. A particular sin may leave us alone for a while to make us think we're rid of it, but it can come back with a hellish fury if we're not on our guard. Sin perpetually stalks us. We must be continually mortifying it. This is a duty we cannot rest from until we rest in glory. And so to sum all this up, right, we're talking about what is mortification. Well, mortification does not mean completely eliminating sin from our lives. That's impossible on this earth. But it means constantly fighting against sin and ultimately weakening it in our lives. That's what it means. And so we need to see sin as our sworn enemy that will do whatever it takes to kill us. And so we need to be willing to do whatever it takes to kill it before it kills us. So that's what mortification is. Now, the second question, and maybe the more important question, is, well, how do we actually go about mortifying sin? How do we go about killing sin? What does that, what does that look like? I know what it is. Okay, but now practically, what does that look like? How do I do that? And so that's the little handout you've got uh, that I put in the back for you. And it's basically 12 ways to mortify sin in your life, right? We're all about 12-step programs, right? So here's 12 steps, right? You know, 12 ways to mortify sin in your life, okay? Uh, this isn't an all-inclusive list by any means, uh, but I think it covers the most basic biblical principles for mortifying sin, and uh, each one of these 12 ways of, of mortifying sin are really a sermon uh, in and of themselves. And I've had 12 more weeks, which I don't. I, m- I might just break off here and just do one a week, right? Because th- these are all very, very um, uh, major concepts in the scriptures that we need to gr- grasp and grapple with. And so I'm hoping that, that maybe what you'll do is you'll take this list home and, and it'll just kind of drive you back into the Word of God to say, hey, I'm, I really want to understand what the, each of these principles really mean and, and how I can actually apply these practically in, in my battle against sin. And so I don't know what your sin is that you, that you struggle with, that 800-pound sin, right, that's got you pinned and, and you've been able, you haven't been able to budge, right? It could be anger, it could be pride, it could be lust, it could be um, materialism, it could be anxiety, it could be gluttony, uh, it could be any life-dominating sin, in other words, things that you're, uh, you know, as the world calls it, addicted to, but things that just dominate your life, that, that seem to control you, and, and, and the Bible says that, you know, we're free to do uh, certain things as long as we're not mastered by anything, right? So the things that master you. Uh, okay, so whatever it is. And uh, last week I told you to, to pick out your toughest temptation, right? And, and, and see if we can apply First Corinthians 10, 13 to encourage you and give you hope. Well, maybe you want to 
pick out uh, whatever it is that, that, that sin is, that, that, that sin that you continually struggle with, you battle against more than any other sin, and let's uh, put it on the skillet tonight, okay, and let's fry it up here with these, with these, uh, these 12 things and see what happens, okay? And so let, let's just quickly walk through these, these, uh, these 12 steps, and they're really not steps because it's not sequential here. I don't know if there's one that, that comes in front of the other or more important than the other. I just kind of put them down as they, they, they came to my mind here, and they seem to flesh themselves out in this way. But, but uh, let's talk about these things. Number one, what is the first way to mortify sin? Well, walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. We, what is Romans 8.13 talks about? If you're putting to death the deeds of the Spirit, or excuse me, the deeds of the flesh right? By the Spirit. By the Spirit, you're putting to death the deeds of the body. So how do we do that practically? Well, Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, talks about the difference between walking according to the flesh and walking by the Spirit. Uh, Galatians five sixteen. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, the Spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please, but if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. In other words, how do you know if you're in the flesh? Well, if there's immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousies, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have also forewarned you, that those who practice, there's our word again, right? Such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, you're not going to heaven. But, if the, fruit, but the fruit of the Spirit is, here, here, this is how you know if you're in the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So, so he's saying here you need to walk by the Spirit. You need to live your life directed by, submitted to, controlled by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5.18, do not be drunk with what? wine but be filled or controlled by the holy spirit so we need to be under the influence of the holy spirit the same way you 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 can be under the influence of alcohol and it kind of controls you right we need to be under the influence of the holy spirit we need to let the spirit control us and so that's what it means to be walking by the spirit you only can be walking one of two ways you're either in the flesh or in the spirit there's no in between so if you want to get out of the flesh, get in the Spirit, right? The best place to get rid of the flesh is to be in the Spirit. And so he tells us to walk, live, submit to, yield our lives to the Spirit's control. In other words, when you are tempted, right, to give in, right, to some sin, you need to give in instead to the Spirit's wooing, right? Right? It's a matter of who, who, who are you going to yield to? Are you going to yield to the temptation of sin or are you going to yield to the Holy Spirit? So walk by the Holy Spirit, number one. Number two, read and meditate on the Word of God. Read and meditate on the Word of God. This cannot be overstated, right? The importance of the Word of God uh, in, in our lives as believers. I love Psalm 119, uh, verse 9 and verse 11. You, you're familiar with these. How can a young man keep his way pure? The psalm is, how, how can a young guy keep his way pure? That's a great question. A lot of young guys have probably asked that. Hey, how in the world am I supposed to stay pure in this impure world? What does he say? By keeping it according to your word. 
With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not, what? Sin against you. You've heard this before. Somebody said that uh, sin will keep you from this book or this book will keep you from sin. Right? So, so we need to make sure that we are, that we are in the word. And uh, Christ, I think, is the perfect example. Uh, every time he was tempted to sin in the wilderness, what did he do? He quoted scripture. And what scripture did he quote? He quoted from the book of Deuteronomy, which was all about the, the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. And so what was he meditating on? How cool is that? He was meditating on something very practical. He was out in the wilderness, just like the Israelites were out in the wilderness. He, he was being tested, if you will, just like the Israelites were being tested. And so when Satan brought those three temptations, what just was on the forefront of his mind was Scripture that he'd been thinking about. He'd been, he'd been memorizing or he'd been, uh, not that Jesus had to memorize Scripture, right? He is the incarnate word. But the point is, he, he quoted Scripture, right, to be an example for us of how do you battle temptation is you fight it with the Word of God. It's the sword of the Spirit, right? The Word of God. So, so listen, if, if, if you don't have any verses stored up in your, in your arsenal, right? The Spirit of God goes for a sword, right? And he's got nothing to choose from. <laughs> you, you haven't stockpiled any, any swords in here, any ammo, right? And that's really what Bible memories, memory verses are all about and, and scripture memory and meditation. It's, it's so you got a, 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 you know, access to all sorts of stuff that, that you can thrust at, at sin and temptation. And Satan, when he throws those fiery darts, you can fire back. And so you need to develop a, a working knowledge of the Scriptures, be skillful, become skillful with the Word, know your way around the Bible, uh, know what the Bible says about pride, know what the Bible says about anxiety, know what the Bible says about gluttony, know what the Bible says about materialism, know what the Bible says about un, uh, unforgiveness and bitterness, and, right? You, you need to know what the Word says about this stuff. And you need to confront the, the, the world and the flesh and the devil and what they're telling you, they're talking in your head, Right? Uh, and you need to confront that with what God says. Uh, but you can't do that if you don't know what God says. So, for example, let me be really practical here, okay? So, say you struggle with pride. Maybe that's just an issue you struggle with, or you're, being, you're selfish. Well, take this thing, and there's a thing in the back of the, this, this book, right, the Bible, called a concordance, and, and why don't you just look up pride? Why don't you look up anxiety? Why don't you look up fear? Uh, why don't you look up whatever it is that you're struggling with and see, right, what, what the Bible has to say about it. And start looking at all the verses from Genesis to Revelation. Everywhere the Bible talks about pride, that, you could do a, a year-long Bible study. You could have your quiet time on pride for a year. And you still wouldn't find all the verses on pride. But hey, if you, sir, you want to attack pride in your life? Attack it with the Word of God. Start doing a Bible study on pride. And don't stop until you've until you've read, until you've found and read every verse in this book about pride. And memorized a couple of the ones that really, the zingers, right, that really convict you. Uh, so that you can use them later on when you're uh, tempted to be prideful. So, so read and meditate on the Word of God. Number three, pray all the time. Pray all the time. We, we talked about this last week, the importance of prayer, right? Uh, Jesus taught the disciples to pray with the Lord's Prayer, not to pray the Lord's Prayer, but to pray like the Lord's Prayer. And one of the, one of the things we should pray about is uh, that, that, that we would not be led into what? 
temptation. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We need to be praying constantly that the Lord would be gracious to us and protect us from temptation. Um, Matthew, later on in, in uh, the garden, remember they, they, that Jesus went away to pray, and he kept coming back, and, and what were the disciples doing? They were sleeping when they, they should have been praying, right? Um, Matthew 26, 41 Jesus said, keep watching and praying. Why? That you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so there's a connection here um, throughout Scripture between prayer and overcoming sin. Uh, Ephesians 6.18 talks about praying all the time. With all prayer, petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert, with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. So talking about praying all the time. Um, uh, this convicts me because I think, man, there's some sins in my life that, that I don't know that I'm seeing as much progress in that I wish and I would have hoped for, but then I have to ask myself, have I really made that a matter of prayer? I mean, really, I mean, really prayed about it. Not just superly, superficially mentioned it from time to time, but really began to pray hard and even fast and pray. You know, the Bible says that, that some things come out only through what? Fasting and prayer, right? And those things kind of go together, fasting and prayer. And so maybe, you know, you got this particular stubborn sin in your life. Well, maybe you need to fast and pray about that, right? It's a way to mortify it, to kill it. Um, something that I've done that has been very helpful over the years is have, always have a five most wanted list. And uh, what I mean by that is to, the five sins that you hate the most in your life. What are your five biggest sins? What are the five areas that you want God to change in you more than any other areas? Shouldn't be too hard, right? Write down a list. Do top five, top five sins, top five ways that you want God to change you. And they just need to be words, you know, mine, mine are self-sufficiency. Um, I'm getting personal now, right? Self-sufficiency. Uh, uh, um, sometimes uh, I, I, I put down melancholy. Sometimes I can kind of be melancholy around the family. Irritability is more maybe the accurate thing. Purity, um, gluttony, jealousy. Uh, and then, then I pray those things and I pray to put on, right? What, what's, the, what's the opposite of of, of, of impurity well it's purity what's the what's the opposite of uh, gluttony it's self-mastery what's the opposite of jealousy humility right what's the opposite of self-sufficiency it's 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 humility in prayer right it's dependence on the lord in prayer and so you know and, and use that as a prayer like every day you can pray those five things in 20 seconds or for two hours depending on how much time you've got right but just make those things a matter of prayer and i promise you if you start praying to god every day and say lord would you help me Stop doing this and start doing this. And you pray that every day. I guarantee you within a month or two, you're going to start seeing some progress in those particular areas. If you're praying about it every day, you're applying the, the, the tool of prayer. So pray all the time and pray very specifically. Number four, we're already there, Ephesians chapter f- uh, six. Put on the armor of God. 
Put on the armor of God. This is a huge concept. We've done series on this. I think a couple of summers ago, we did a whole summer super study on the, on the pieces of the armor. But you're familiar, right? Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord, the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so you'll be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. One of the reasons why we give in to sin so often is because we're out there, you know, in our t-shirt and boxer shorts. You know, we're not suited up. We're not putting on the armor. We're walking out on the battlefield, you know, with nothing but shorts and a t-shirt on. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, again, we could talk for days about what does it mean to put on the armor of God. Uh, if you are interested, go online, and I think we have that all uh, um, catalog there or um, what do you call that backlogged on our on our uh, internet site and uh, you can study up what does it mean to put on the armor of God but put on the armor of God number five okay hate and fear sin those probably could be two separate ones but but I just put them down there hate and fear sin Um, I think about what did what did what did Joseph say when Potiphar's wife Right, the original desperate housewife was coming after him. Right, Genesis thirty-nine nine. He, she, she, she just comes bold faced and says, "Lie with me, sleep with me." And and how does he respond? I love this. Genesis chapter thirty-nine, verse nine. He says, "There is no one greater in this house than I." And he is withheld, talking about the, the husband, right, Potiphar's Potiphar, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. And then check it out, bottom line, bottom line, okay? He, he, yeah, you're, you're married, okay? <laughs> that should settle it, but check this out. How then could I do this great, what? Evil and sin against God. So Joseph saw sin as evil, he hated sin. And so we need to see sin for what it really is, that it's just it's wicked rebellion uh, against the Lord. It, it grieves his heart and, 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 uh, and it despises his authority. And, and we, should, we should hate sin, not for what it does to us necessarily, but simply for what it is. Thomas Brooks, one of the uh, Puritan in his book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, was talking about a man who said this, if there were no God to punish him, no devil to torment him, no hell to burn him, no man to see him, yet he would not sin for the ugliness and filthiness of sin. What motivates you not to sin? Right? Because you're afraid of the consequences, because somebody might see you, right? Um, God might punish you, um, the devil might torment you, or do you not sin because you just hate sin? Because it's evil, it's ugly, it's filthy. I was dealing with a situation recently and I drove away from the situation and, 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 and I just thought, this was with the thought that came across my mind, I just, I just saw what, what sin had done to a family. 
and how sin had just devastated. It's like a bomb went off in their house because of sin. And, and my thought was, why would I ever sin again? Why would I ever sin again? Because I just saw, right, I was on the front lines and I saw what sin does. I saw the consequences and why would I ever sin again? But guess what I'm doing five minutes later? I'm sinning, right? We've we got to learn to, to hate sin. We also need to learn to fear sin, to fear sin, right? We know the story of Acts chapter 5 and Ananias and Sapphira, they lied and they died, right? And what does it say? That it said that, that fear, right, came over the, the entire congregation. Great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. They saw, man, sin is, sin is serious. God takes sin seriously here. He's killing people for it. And then we, we, we know what it says in 1 Timothy 5, verse 20, right? When, when sin has to be rebuked in, in the life of a church and, and in the life of a leader, those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be what? Fearful of sinning. So we just need to learn to hate sin and, and, and to fear sin. To, to be afraid of, the, of not just the consequences of sin, but just be afraid of sin. Sin is deceptive. It's destructive, Right? We should be afraid of it. How about this number six? Don't feed the flesh. Don't feed the flesh. Um, we already looked at uh, if your hand caused you to sin, cut it off. Your eye caused you to sin, what? Gouge it out, right? How about, how about Romans chapter 13, verse 14? This is a great little verse. Romans chapter 13, verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. In other words, our, our flesh, our sinful flesh, is always looking for opportunities to gratify itself. And so we can't provide any opportunities where it could possibly feed itself, right? In other words, you need to remove whatever it is in your life that has the potential to cause you to sin. You need to make it very hard for yourself to sin. Sometimes we, we, we kind of take out our, we kind of keep our little pet sin in the closet, right? And we, we, we open up the door and, oh, it's so cute, and we pull it out and we, you know, we, we, we pet it and we feed it, you know, and we do that. We put it back in the closet, okay, and then we go away and we, whatever, repent and ask the Lord to forgive us. We go back and we pull it out and it's a little bigger this time, right? Right? And, wow, you're getting big. And, you know, and put it back in there, right? And, and the next thing you know, one day, right, this happens over a series of, of weeks or months or years, and you open that door, and there's a lion that pounces out on top of you and eats you alive, right? Why? Because you, you just fed that flesh, right? You just kept feeding it, sticking a T-bone under the door, right? Every time you sinned, it's like you're, you're feeding that thing. And so, so listen, whatever it is, you got to throw away stuff in your house, cancel subscriptions to things, uh, pull the plug on your cable, uh, whatever it is, get some uh, internet uh, uh, software that's going to hold you accountable to where you're going on the internet, you know, don't drive by the donut shop, find another way to work, whatever it is that you're struggling with, right, you got to remove opportunities to, to sin, so don't feed the flesh, very practical principle, um, I was thinking there's some half gallons of Bluebell that should find their way to the trash tonight in my house. That would be a practical way to apply this, right? I just hate throwing money away, you know. Money and ice cream, same thing right now. Okay, how about this? Expose the root issue. Expose the root issue. 
This is, I think, a very important principle that's often overlooked. Mark chapter 7, Jesus is talking about um, what's going on in the heart. Mark 7, 21, for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. In other words, you know, stop looking at the symptoms, right? A lot of the stuff that we deal with in life, that's just a symptom of something going on in our hearts. And so get past the, the apples. Okay, there's, there's apples growing on my tree. There's oranges. There's rotten oranges on my tree, right? Where, where are they coming from? Well, you've got to go back to the root of the tree and find out. What, start digging around the root and go, what, what's causing these things to come out? Um, James chapter 4, uh, James, James talked about this as well. Um, you remember he talked about quarrels. You know, what, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? So in other words, you, you, need to, you need to realize that your behavior is produced by your heart, right? They're, they're, res, they're the result of your sinful actions, your sinful words, your sinful attitudes, the result of something going on in your heart, and one of the reasons that maybe you're not changing the way you hoped you would or want to is because you're only dealing with the surface. It's like you're lazy, like you're the lazy gardener, right? You, we walk up our sidewalk and we're like, look at all these weeds, and I, I don't like the look of those things. And so we just go down and really quickly just kind of pull up, right? And we're really just breaking them off at the surface, right? It looks good for the next week, but what happens? Those things are back there a week from now. Why? Because we didn't get the, what? Didn't dig them out by the root. And so that's why sin keeps coming up in our lives because we're not dealing with the root issue. So figure out what is the root issue and dig that sucker out, right? Um, maybe anger, right? You're sitting there and you're a lazy boy uh, reading the newspaper and, and uh, your kids, you know, are fighting in the bedroom and then you just go ballistic, right? And, and, and you think, oh man, I just, I just hate my anger. I don't know why I get so angry all the time. Well, that, that was just a symptom of something else going down in your heart. What, what made you angry? What hacked you off so much? It was because you 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 crave comfort and you crave you're, you're selfish and you wanted not have to deal with it. You wanted to sit there and enjoy a night reading the newspaper, right? And you and you didn't get to do that, and so you sinned, right, against your kids by screaming and yelling at them um, and beating them beating them within an inch of their lives. No, just kidding, um, because you just couldn't have what you wanted, right? So it's, it's starting to go down to the root. Of what's what's driving my my actions? Um, how, how about this one? Uh, break and build habits. Break and build habits. In other words, break old habits and build new habits in their place. This is the put off, put on principle, right? You're familiar with it. Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians, uh, Colossians chapter 3. We need to learn to put off certain sinful habits, but it's not just enough to say, I need to stop doing that. You have to go to the next step. The other side of the coin is, right, is I need to start doing something in its place. So sometimes we, we just, we, we just, all we focus on is I got to quit it, I got to stop it, I keep doing it, instead of saying, hey, maybe I need to start thinking about what I should be doing in its place. Yeah, so you got to fill the void with something different. Uh, and so basically you're retraining yourself, you're breaking old habits, you're building new habits, you're putting off, you're taking off the old clothes, putting on a new set of clothes in their place. Ephesians 4, Colossians 3. Think rightly. Number nine, think rightly, Romans 12, 2. Where does that retraining start? Starts between the ears, right? It starts in the head. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be 
transformed by the renewing of your what? Of your mind, right? 2 Corinthians 10.5 talks about taking every thought captive and making it obedient to Christ, right? So a sinful thought comes into our minds. What are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to let that thought take, take us captive so that we will obey what it tells us to do? Or are we to take that thought captive? Right? We're supposed to take that thought captive. An example would be Philippians chapter, uh, Philippians chapter 4, where it says, Be anxious for nothing, but with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. And then he says what? Let your mind, what? Dwell on these things. Whatever is true, whatever is right, whatever is pure. So here comes some situation that's, that's starting to freak you out and you're starting to get anxious and the anxiety attack, right, is coming. And, and, and so you, you need to take that thought captive, right? How do you do that? Well, you begin praying, turning, turning that care into a prayer, and that's when God will replace that fear and anxiety with peace, right? And then to sustain that, you need to keep your mind focused on what is true, not what might happen, right? What could happen, right? But what is praiseworthy, what's honorable, let your mind dwell on these things. So you need to, it's all about thinking, right? If you think right, you'll act right. You can't, you can't act right. You won't, you'll never act right until you start thinking right. So it all starts in the head. So you need to think rightly. Number 10, stay humble. Stay humble. Jeremiah 79 said, that says that our hearts are deceitfully wicked, so wicked we don't even understand how wicked they are. That you, in your heart, I, in my heart, have the seeds of any sin possible. There's nothing, absolutely nothing that you could not do. That's a humble perspective, right? To not think you're above something. If anyone thinks he stands, take heed lest he, what? Fall. Galatians 6.1, it says that when you restore one, you do it gently, looking to yourself lest you to be tempted. In other words, you know that you're just as susceptible to that sin as that person you're, you're coming alongside to restore. That you could do the same thing. Don't ever say, I would never do that. You're on, slip, you're on slippery ground. You're, you're, you're on thin ice when you think that there's something that you couldn't do. So stay humble. Just stay humble and say, you know what? I'm a, I'm a powder keg, man. I'm going to stay as far away from any sparks as possible because I'm just going to blow. If I get anywhere near sparks, so I'm going to be humble and I'm going to realize I know my limits. I know what I struggle with, right? And, uh, and so I'm just going to be humble about it and, and, and I'm not going to act like I'm stronger than I really am. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to realize that, that um, you know, I, I need to, I, I, there's, there's nothing I'm not capable of doing. And so I'm not even going to put myself in a situation where it might happen. And number 11, be accountable. Be accountable. Ecclesiastes 4 talks about how two are better than one, right? That if you fall and there's no one there to, to, to help you, it's like the guy that went down in that, in that canyon, right? There was nobody, he didn't tell anybody where he was that day. And he, know, he, he knew his goose was cooked because nobody knew where even to start looking for him. And so you need to be accountable. Uh, you, need a, you need somebody that you can talk to. Uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 10 talks about uh, stimulating one, to, one another to love and good deeds and don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together uh, so that you can encourage one another. We need to be encouraged. We need to be accountable. Listen, I'm just going to say it this way. 
Some of you have been confessing the same sin over and over and over again for the last month. And you have, you're not getting any victory over that sin. I'll tell you what you can do tonight that will give you victory over that sin. You confide in a brother or sister in Christ. See, we're, we're good at confessing, right? And in some ways, that's easy because it's just us and God and nobody else has to know, right? But you go to a whole, you take your sanctification to a whole different level when you go confess, from confessing your sin to God to confiding in a brother or sister in Christ. And sometimes that's the game changer. When someone else knows, right, and they can start holding you accountable, right? And I praise God, there's some men in my life that, that, that I know I have to look, at, look, look at in the eye on a regular basis and they're going to ask me some hard questions about what's going on in my life. And I'm so thankful for that. Uh, so make yourself accountable. And, and don't lie. <laughs> right? You, you, can, you, can, you can have an accountability partner, but you can lie to them. I've been lied to. Um, hey, forget people who've lied to me about where they're at spiritually, right? Um, I always don't tell people exactly where I'm at. I'll, I'll give them enough to let them know I'm, or make them think that I'm spiritual, right? I might be battling with some sin in my life, but I'll just tell them kind of that I'm battling on this level, but I'm really battling on this level, right? Be honest, okay? Accountability, only, you're only as accountable as you want to be. Last thing, number 12, long for heaven. Long for heaven. You say, what does that have to do with anything, overcoming sin? Well, listen, as long as we're on this planet, we are going to be assaulted by sin, by, by temptation. Uh, we are aliens and strangers, right? who, who are, are seeking to abstain uh, from fleshly lust, which war against our soul. We need to remember we're aliens and strangers. This is not our home. We need to be longing for heaven. We, we want out of this place. I can't wait for the day when I'll never sin again, right? That, that needs to be driving, a driving force in our lives. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 talks about when Jesus comes back, right? It says we will see him and we will be what? Like him. No more sin. That's going to be an amazing day. And so we should just be, as we wander through this world full, full of snares and traps, uh, we, just, we should just have this anticipation, come Lord Jesus, right? Long for heaven. That's right. And so just remember we're going to heaven, right? We're going to heaven. And uh, this is not our home, and so I think that's a helpful, helpful uh, way to mortify sin, long for, long for heaven. Now, again, 12, 12 ways to mortify sin. Again, I encourage you to, to, to think how do these practically apply to, to this sin that's got me trapped, that's got me pinned, that got me, got, has me in this canyon. Um, I, need to, I, need, I need to escape. I need to, I need to get, if I'm going to get out alive, I need to start applying these things. Now, let me just wrap up with, with uh, talking about a guy that you all need to know if you don't know him. His name is John Owen. John Owen is known as the theologian of the Puritan movement. Uh, he preached a series of messages on the theme of mortification. And check this out. He originally preached it to a congregation full of teenagers. So you don't think, well, this is kind of heavy stuff. It's kind of over my head. No, he was preaching to teenagers. Okay? And in fact, it, all it was was a massive exposition of Romans 8.13. Explaining Romans 8.13 and applying Romans 8.13. And it became his most popular work 
um, known as Sin and Temptation. Uh, it's a spiritual classic. And uh, listen to what he says. He says, the vigor and power and comfort of our spiritual life depends on the mortification of the deeds of the flesh. Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Live in this way and you will die a conqueror. Now, if you've been tracking tonight, you're like, oh, wait, time out. That's just kind of like went against everything you just said because I thought if we killed sin, then we would live. That's what Paul said, but, but Owen says we're going to die. <laughs> well, the irony of mortification is this, that sin will eventually kill all of us because what? The wages of sin is death. There's a reason why we all die, why we're getting gray and, and we're getting creaky and old, right? Because it's, a, it's the consequences of sin. So sin is ultimately going to kill us, but we will ultimately be victorious over it. You're like, how does this work? Well, just last month, right, April, if, you, if you're a Texas fan, not Texans fan, but if you're like born and bred Texas and you breathe, you bleed Texan or whatever you bleed here, right, um, you know what we were celebrating last month. What was it? The Texas independence, right? And so I, I think the, the story of the Alamo, to me, is a, a brilliant analogy of mortification. Because here you got this, this fort, right, that was, um, was being defended by, what, 180 or so uh, Texans, and here's the Mexican army coming, 6,000 strong, under the leadership of Santa Ana, and the Texans send out for reinforcements, and, and they, they realize that, that no one's coming, and they, they realize they either have to surrender or die, and that's when Travis, right, gets out there in the courtyard and he takes out his sword, he draws the line in the dirt and he says, listen, you can take your chances with the Mexicans, right, and Santa Ana and you can surrender or you can cross this line and die with me. I love that. I saw that movie when I went to the San Antonio for the first time, I'm like, sign me up, Where do I, how do we become a Texan, man, right here. I love that story, it was really a compelling story, right? And so every man that crossed that line that day knew they were going to die, but they were determined to die fighting and to kill as many enemy soldiers as they could before they died. And they ultimately became heroes, right? And we know their courage, their sacrifice motivated the, the rest of the army in the Battle of San Jacinto. Remember the Alamo, right? We love that story. Well, this is it. This is the same thing in our spiritual lives. We know that we will eventually die, that sin is going to kill us. But we need to commit ourselves to die fighting and to kill as many sins as possible before we die. And ultimately, we're going to die a conqueror. We're going to die a conqueror. And I think it's, I love the letter that, that Travis wrote, one of the letters. It's, 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 it's his, one he's most famous for. It's the victory or death letter. You may have read that. He says, fellow citizens, I'm besieged by a thousand or more of Mexicans under Santa Ana. I've sustained a continual bombardment and cannonade for 24 hours and have not lost a man. The enemy has demanded a surrender. Otherwise, the garrison are to be put to the sword if the fort is taken. I mean, you see the spiritual connection there? I mean, is that not our lives? We're besieged, right, by thousands of, of, of sins and temptations and, and Satan's uh, fiery darts, and we're just con continually bombarded by these things, and, 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 and Satan's demanding our surrender, and he says, I've answered the demand with a cannon shot. 
I'm just going to fire my cannon at you, right? And our flag still waves proudly from the walls. I shall never surrender or retreat. I call on you to come to our aid. If this call is neglected, I'm determined to sustain myself as long as possible and die like a soldier who never forgets what is due to his honor and that of his country, victory or death. William Barrett Travis, P.S. You ready for this? The Lord is on our side. The Lord is on our side, guys. And as we battle sin and temptation, we need to remember ultimately that the Lord is on our side. Father, we, we're so grateful that we can have that confidence and that hope that you're on our side as we, as we struggle and we fight and we fail and we biff and we mess up and we, <laughs> we just, uh, just a royal mess up so many times when it comes to our battle against sin and temptation. And, and yet we're so grateful, Lord, for forgiveness that comes when we confess to you. And Lord, we thank you for uh, this principle of, of mortification, putting the deeds of the flesh to death by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we can't do this in our own strength. Uh, when we do, we'll fail. But we thank you that Paul made it very clear that it's by the power of the Spirit that we do this. Lord, thank you for giving us the Spirit, for leaving the Spirit, sending the Spirit so that we could um, be led into all truth and that we could be victorious over sin um, in, this, in this journey as aliens and strangers. And so I pray you'd help us to put into practice the principles of your word that we've looked at tonight. I know it's a lot to try to process all at once, but this would just lead us to a, uh, just maybe days and weeks of personal study as we seek how to uh, uh, implement these principles and apply these principles to that stubborn sin, that, that thing that we're constantly uh, given into, Lord, whatever it is, that uh, you would just help us to, to, to have victory over that for your honor and for your glory, uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, listen, uh, we'll see you guys in, uh, I guess it's going to be really four weeks from tonight because we've got three weeks break. Uh, third week of June, we'll be back here for the summer super study, right? Uh, I don't know exactly the date, but it's third, third, third Wednesday of, of June, all right? So enjoy your time off and, and looking forward to getting, getting kicked off here in a, in a little bit, all right? You're dismissed.